You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Collective Cafe, a virtual coffee experience which takes place every single Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in both Alpha Collective's Discord, that's discord.gg forward slash alpha collective and startup clubs house in clubhouse it's free it always will be free there are no strings attached there is no bait and switch lurk or listen only chat with one another in our back chat or even come onto stage the coffee shop is open for business whether you're on the treadmill getting the kids ready for school getting yourself ready for work commuting into the big bad city or maybe just even commuting from your bedroom to your home office on monday we manifest on tuesday we talk thought leadership on wellness wednesday we discuss mental health wellness and life skills on thursday we do live book reads and discussions with the author and then on friday it's no agenda friday where there is no agenda Start your day off on the right foot, on the front foot, with virtual coffee, with the Collective Cafe, where we mastermind, we manifest, we collaborate, we help one another at the business of Web3 or anything else that intersects, whether it's culture, collaboration, creativity, innovation, disruption, entrepreneurship, or coaching. So give us a subscribe, bit.ly forward slash Collective Cafe to go, or a review on your favorite podcast platform if you're listening on demand or of course join us every day live it is addictive and remember it is a safe welcoming space and you will never ever be put on the spot this is alpha collectives collective cafe my name is joseph jaffe well good morning good morning everybody it is thursday wow wow february 1st 29 days ahead can you believe that we are in the second month already. How is your year going? Are you ahead of the curve? Are you are you keeping pace with where you hoped you would be? Are you behind? Are you behind the eight ball? As I sip my real coffee, even though this is virtual coffee. Mm. My name is Joseph Jaffe. We do the Collective Cafe Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. In Clubhouse, uh, we're we're going to make a little move to Chatter as well at some point, um, which is Nelson Apiga's new, uh, I don't know, if it's, is it Clubhouse killer? Can I say that? Hopefully not. Maybe Clubhouse friend, frenemy? I'm not really sure. Um, but uh, I want to uh, audience, audience, audience. That's what it's about. Actually, it is. It isn't, it isn't about audience because I do this every day, whether you show up or not, I'm here. Monday, Manifestation, Monday, Tuesdays, Thought Leadership Tuesday, Wednesday is Wellness Wednesday, Thursday we do live book reads, and Friday, tomorrow, we call it No Agenda because uh, anyone can come onto stage and uh, just say, you know, say what's on your mind. 
Um, take the stage for five minutes. Talk about what you want to talk about or ask me to talk about something that um, that you want me to talk about. Ask a question, op- office hours, whatever you want. I've just put the link above, discord.gg forward slash Alpha Collective. That is actually the home um, of the Collective Cafe. But there are a few more things. We have a Discord, discord.gg uh, forward slash Alpha Collective, as I said, is where kind of like, for example, I'll post links today, etc., etc. In addition, there is a podcast version, and uh, that is bit.ly forward slash Collective Cafe to go. So about an hour to two hours after this session ends, um, you'll be able to get the audio, the podcast version, subscribe to it. Also, I typically will do like a, an 800-word uh, article which I'll publish on LinkedIn. So there's a lot of value that comes out. For me, the most important thing is that you walk out of this. There are two points. Number one is I want you to walk out richer, smarter, you know, with at least one insight or nugget that you can use, literally implement today to make your life a little bit better, uh, life a bit richer, maybe make a little bit more money. Um, and I don't want or need anything from you other than, quite frankly, just the fact that you showed up is enough for me. You know, if you really wanted to do something, go tell a friend, share the room today, uh, share it now if you want, or just tell someone about it. Um, because I'd like to believe that this is too good to just keep for yourself. The other thing is I don't want you to work. I don't need you to work. I want you to sit back. I want you to uh, be on the treadmill. I want you to be taking the dog for a walk. I want you to be getting the kids ready for school or commuting. Um, I want this to feed your ears and feed your brain and feel, feed your soul. Um, and, and not feel like you need to be on stage. But at some point, if you want to come up, you can come up and we can chat about it. Um, anyway, let's get on with the live book read today. Today, um, this is a book that uh, I, I need to read as a coach. It's actually part of my, uh, my clients need to read it too. So we're going to read it together. Um, and the book is by um, uh, Patrick Lencioni. It's called A Leadership Fable. And it's called The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive. So when we talk about this idea of being a leader, you know, being a manager, being a startup founder, this is what it's about, the four obsessions of an extraordinary executive. So we're going to get straight into it and uh, hope you enjoy the read uh, with my funny accent, um, my South African accent. Rich O'Connor's detractors said he was lucky. Others believed he had a natural gift for management and leadership. Little did they know. Introduction. If everything is important, then nothing is. No one understands the power of this saying saying more than a person who leads an organization, whether it is a multinational corporation, a department within, within a larger company, or a small entrepreneurial venture. Every organization provides its leader with more distractions and concerns than one person can handle. The key to managing this challenge, of course, is to identify a reasonable number of issues that will have the greatest possible impact on the success of your organization and then spend most of your time thinking about, talking about, and working on those issues. But what are they? Before we can identify them, it is important to understand what is ultimately necessary for organizational success. I believe that all successful organizations share two qualities. They're smart and they're healthy. By the way, if you were in the Collective Cafe yesterday, we did a whole session. Please go and find that article on my LinkedIn um, or, you know, the podcast version of it because it was about the 10 underrated emotions in the workplace. Because the thing is, when it comes to the workplace, we're very, we're very good uh, at smart, but not so much healthy. 
We're very good on IQ, but we're not so good on EQ. And so this is the whole kind of, you know, the logic and emotion side. So anyway, I continue. An organization demonstrates that it is smart by developing intellect strategies, marketing plans, product features, and financial models that lead to competitive advantage over its rivals. It demonstrates that it is healthy by eliminating politics and confusion, which leads to higher morale, lower turnover, and higher productivity. As important as both both of these topics are, I've found that most leaders spend the majority of their time and energy making their organizations smarter with relatively little effort directed toward making them healthier. This is understandable considering the predominant focus of business schools and business media. It is regrettable, however, when one considers the powerful and unique attributes of organizational health. First, healthy organizations have a way of making themselves smarter. Even if their ideas are temporarily inferior to those of competitors, they're usually humble and efficient enough to reorganize, oh, sorry, to recognize their deficiencies and make changes in their plans before it is too late. On the other hand, plenty of anonymous and forgotten companies have squandered intellectual advantages because of infighting, lack of clarity, and other problems that plague unhealthy organizations. I just want to say a little point here, which is important, which is we've seen time and time again, you know, I always use the, the Yankees as an example. The New York Yankees haven't won a World Series in, I don't know, a long time, a long time. And they're wealthy and they buy success, or at least they attempt to buy success. They've got the budget, the ability to bring in uh, or bring on the, the, the top free agents. A club, uh, for those of you in, in Europe or outside of the U.S. or even inside the U.S., Manchester United, another wealthy club with the ability to buy, buy, buy. But that doesn't equate to success. See, the reality is that the power of the team, the chemistry of the team, the ability of the team to work together is more important than the actual individual abilities of the members of that team. It's just as simple as that. The chemistry, you know, the, the, the synergy, the cohesiveness, the functional ability for people to work together. It is the quintessential one plus one equals three. Whereas in a team or in a company of egos, you actually end up, you know, just wasting energy, stepping on toes, creating all that confusion, that ambiguity in those politics. Second, healthy companies are far less susceptible to ordinary problems than unhealthy ones. During difficult times, for instance, employees will remain committed to a healthy organization and stay with it longer, ultimately working to reestablish competitive advantage. Finally, and this point is critical, no one but the head of an organization can make it healthy. While executives often successfully delegate responsibility for strategy, technology, marketing, or finance to their direct reports, they cannot assign responsibility for their organization's cultural well-being to anyone but themselves and the saying of course is that a fish rots from the head down and so as odd as it may seem it is actually more important for leaders to focus on making their organizations healthy than on making them smart but don't misunderstand me not for a second am i saying that issues like strategy product innovation and marketing are unimportant they're indeed critical and, and deserve a great deal of mindfulness from any executive team. 
It's just that these topics receive a wildly disproportionate amount of attention from well-meaning and intelligent executives who somehow cannot find the time and energy to focus on making their organizations healthy. Why does this happen? Because organizational health is relatively hard to measure and even harder to achieve. It feels soft to executives who prefer more quantitative and reliable methods of steering their companies. It also entails a longer lead time to implementation than does a technical or marketing strategy, which yields more immediate results and gratification. But perhaps most important of all, organizational health is often neglected because it involves facing realities of human behavior that even the most committed executive is tempted to avoid. It requires levels of discipline and courage that only a truly extraordinary executive is willing to embrace. The purpose of this book is to help executives understand the disarming simplicity and power of organizational health and the four actionable steps that allow them to achieve it. It begins with the tale of two companies, a healthy one fighting off a potential virus and an unhealthy one searching desperately for the cure. This is a work of fiction. Any resemblance to real life is purely unavoidable. The Fable Part 1. Green's Pain The Rival $80 million in annual revenue should have made him happy. Or at least not bitter, but Vince Green, the founder and CEO of Greenwich Consulting, would not be satisfied until his company was recognized as the number one technical consulting firm in the Bay Area. And on particularly bad days, he joked that he would be truly happy only when his competitor, Telegraph Partners, was dead. It wasn't that Telegraph was much larger than Greenwich. In fact, from time to time, Greenwich rivaled Telegraph's quarterly revenue, although its profits never seemed to do so. More than the financial award bothered Vince and his staff that Greenwich couldn't seem to win any of the less tangible battles, Telegraph was always regarded as a darling of the trade press. Industry analysts fawned over them. Telegraph's clients raved about their services and even stood by them during difficult times. Though Greenwich certainly garnered its share of new business, retaining clients felt like a constant struggle. On the other hand, life seemed too easy for Telegraph. And if this bothered Vince, then the battle for employees enraged him. Telegraph didn't have to work as hard or spend as much time recruiting good people. To make matters worse, there seemed to be a small but steady stream of employees leaving Greenwich to join Telegraph. But rarely did traffic flow in the other direction, and in those few instances when employees actually did leave Telegraph or Greenwich pastures, they really stayed more than a year. Perhaps the most subtle but frustrating aspect of the competitive relationship that kept Greenwich executives awake and angry at night was the fact that Telegraph CEO Rich O'Connor rarely, if ever, acknowledged Greenwich. Not during press interviews, conference speeches, or client presentations. And when a Greenwich executive occasionally met Telegraph's chief executive during an industry event, almost without fail, he seemed genuinely disinterested in Greenwich and unaware of what his largest and most direct competitor was doing. All of this would have been less frustrating had Greenwich not invested so much time and money learning about its rival. From interviews with former Telegraph employees to minor acts of legal corporate espionage, 
Greenwich had amassed as much knowledge about its competitor as about any of its own clients. Still, none of the surveillance yielded anything that Greenwich could put to use. Until now. Reconnaissance. As part of his desire to understand the mystery of Telegraph's success, Vince Green occasionally invited business scholars to staff meetings. Strategy experts, marketing professors, and finance gurus had analyzed Telegraph's practices, paying particular attention to any areas where Telegraph and Greenwich differed. Much to the, to the dismay of Green and his team, these experts usually found little real difference between the rival firm's business strategies. Both companies recruited from the same schools. They paid their employees similar salaries. Greenwich actually paid slightly more. They invested roughly equal amounts in marketing. The financial models they used to run their businesses were remarkably similar. Even the prices they charged clients and the services they offered were almost identical. Confounded by the lack of insight gained from these high-priced analysts, Green reluctantly agreed to have a local organizational department development professor and consultant compare the cultures of the two companies. On the day that she came to present her findings as the weekly executive staff meeting, at their weekly executive staff meeting, Green was in no mood to listen to psycho babble about the importance of employee picnics and holiday parties. He would be pleasantly surprised. The consultant immediately grabbed the attention of everyone seated around the conference table. Based on the information available in the research I've done, there is so little in common between Greenwich and Telegraph that making a comparison is extremely difficult. Amazed by the apparent ridiculousness of the remark, Green was on the verge of bringing the presentation to an early halt. But before he could do so, she continued. Something about Telegraph's culture is remarkable. Like none I've ever seen. Their ability to attract clients and employees, to retain clients and employees, and even to maintain a loyal base of former clients and employees is really very impressive. The Greenwich team was caught between two strong emotions, a sense of relief at having finally discovered even a kernel of insight that might help them understand Telegraph, and a wave of disappointment that their competitor had recruited yet another admiring fan. Green was too driven to let jealousy override his desire to understand his competitor. So what exactly are they doing? Although the consultant could not ascertain the core reasons for the cultural discrepancy, she spent the next hour simply describing various aspects of Telegraph's culture. Apparently, there's almost no politics, very little voluntary turnover, and relatively few lawsuits brought by disgruntled employees. Even most of the former employees I spoke to raved about the firm's culture. The executive team listened closely, asked questions, and scribbled notes like college students the day before a final exam. The consultant eventually concluded her remarks. Essentially, they have an organization that is so sound, so, she struggled for the right word, so healthy that it makes them immune to most threats. This more than anything else they're doing, seems to be driving their success financially, strategically, and competitively. I wish I knew exactly how they did it. By the way, there's a, a little key phrase here. Did you notice that? So healthy that it makes them immune to most, most threats. 
So remember at the beginning, we heard the word virus, right? About this idea of virus. So, you know, in my mind right now, my mind is racing, thinking about things like, can you future-proof? People say it's impossible to future-proof a company. But what does it mean making, making you immune to most threats? I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about it, write it down, make a note. I'm not sure if we will answer it today or you'll have to come back next Thursday or the following Thursday to the Collective Cafe when we continue and finish this book. But what does it mean to be immune to a threat? And is that something you can take with you, you know, as an employee, as a, as a partner, as a, a member of a company, as a founder, etc.? Vince spoke for the first time in an hour. So do I. Standing now, he waved and forced a smile to say thank you to the consultant and left the room immediately. No one could have known that he already had an idea. Now, where did I put that phone number? Part two, the history. In many ways, Rich O'Connor and Vince Green were alike. Besides being CEOs of the area's top technical consulting firms, they were essentially likable and decent men. Both were tireless workers, fierce competitors, and committed husbands and fathers. They also happened to receive their training at UC Berkeley's business school at the same time. Vince had worked with a top management consultant firm before B-School. During his two years at Berkeley, he followed the stock market religiously, maintained contact with business associates, and read as, ma- as many analyst re- reports as he could get his hands on. He graduated near the top of his class. Rich also earned impressive grades, but maintained a relatively low profile in the process. To earn extra cash, he waited tables and tutored undergraduate students. And when he wasn't working on class, he could be found at the psychology lab where his wife-to-be worked. Because Rich spent so much time away from the business school, he didn't establish quite as many close relationships with classmates as most others did. When Vince decided to start his own consulting firm, just a few years out of, out of school, no one was surprised. When Rich did the same thing two months uh, later, no one noticed. The timing for getting into technical consulting was ideal, and for their first three years in business, both firms grew dram- dramatically. Each CEO believed his success was the result of extremely hard work, a little luck, and amazing attention to detail within his respective firm. Both of them received regular reports about virtually every consulting engagement that their firms took on. They knew where every dollar was being spent, how much every client owed, and which competitors were bidding on which projects. During this time, Rich and Vince developed a cordial, though somewhat distant relationship. Although the two rivals respected one another, they also knew that the other would be glad to take his business away from him if he lost his edge. So they were determined to never lose their edge. Neither firm established any discernible advantage over the other, and they shared much of the emerging local spotlight when it came to consulting. Vince liked to say that their companies maintained a degree of balance that made coexistence possible, even enjoyable. Let me repeat that statement. Vince liked to say that their companies maintained a degree of balance that made coexistence possible, even enjoyable, until something changed. Out of nowhere, Telegraph seemed to gain an advantage over its rival. Before he knew what was happening, Vince found himself increasingly frustrated by his firm's inability to compete with Telegraph on a variety of issues. What he didn't understand at the time was that in spite of all their similarities, he and Rich O'Connor had suddenly become 
become quite different CEOs. So I just want to say something, you know, at the moment, which is, you know, there is a, I always use this, this line a lot, which is people don't care much you know until they know how much you care, right? So sometimes it, these intangibles, these soft skills, you know, actually start to play an important role. But another thing that I've often said, um, you know, and certainly in my consulting days and uh, having written five books on business and keynoted in 51 countries, all of this before the pandemic, I don't do that anymore. But, you know, during this time, in fact, even in my very first book, Life After the 30 Second Spot, I actually said the four P's are commoditized, product, price, place, promotion. That if you actually get in your mind that you are a commodity, and of course, in a commodity-driven market, the only way that a commod- the only thing that powers, the only variable that powers a commodity-driven market is price. Steel, coal, sugar, salt, wheat, a commodity. And if you think of your business, whether you are a, a rental car, whether you are you know, a cellular provider, whether you are a bank, for the most part, if you actually, you know, every morning wake up and actually say that we are a commodity, we'd like to believe we have the greatest product, completely unmatched by any other product in the marketplace, or our pricing is so advanced and, you know, and and competitive and value-driven and, you know, or, you know, cutting-edge promotion, how we do social media or, you know, our website or our SEO or our wonderful Super Bowl spots or whatever the case may be in place, whether it's retail stores or our distribution strategy. But for the most part, you know, when the internet came along, and this is why I wrote it at the time, when comparison shopping was just a click away, Often we said at the time that it wasn't word of mouth anymore, it was word of mouse. That you had the ability now to compare. Everything was just perfect information, perfect pricing. You could also, you know, be able to just look at reviews and determine who was more trustworthy. And what about place? Everything was available now, 24-7, 365, always on. Again, just a website away. So if you begin with this assumption that you are a commodity, then you have to become obsessed on other ways to differentiate. And there are many ways to think about that, whether it is customer obsession or customer service, whether it's community involvement, sustainability purpose. But culture, of course, is another one as well. And at EOS, we would, you know, Gina Wickman, the founder of EOS, would say, the biggest differentiator that that distinguishes or differentiates or creates success between companies is a strong leadership team. Not culture per se, but a strong leadership team. But already we're getting hints of that in the book, that it comes from the top, the CEO down, the visionary down. And culture clearly is, is a part of that. But how does it manifest? or Where does it manifest for the first time? In that leadership team. Desperate epiphany. It happened late one night while Rich sat alone in his home office contemplating selling his beloved three-year-old company. 
He was about to break under the pressure of trying to balance his family and his successful but demanding business. It seemed that with every passing month, there was more to know. Competitive analysis, technology advancements, industry trends, client updates, and less time to learn all about it. But Rich prided himself on knowing his firm inside and out, and he always found a way to stay on top of what was going on at Telegraph. It was when he missed his third consecutive little league game that things began to unravel. He and his wife had begun to lose patience with his increasingly unmanageable schedule. And as hard as he tried, Rich could see no relief in sight. Selling the firm and taking on a less demanding job seemed like the only way to alleviate the pressure on him and his family. But the company had become such a part of Rich's life that he was unable to pull the trigger on a sale. So he decided to try an experiment. For three months, he would quietly limit himself to 50-hour work weeks. Note, limit himself to 50-hour work weeks. Far below his usual 70. Note, far below his usual 70, which would give Rich plenty of time for his family. At the end of the experiment, if the firm was showing any signs of distress, he would sell. For the first month, he struggled, often bringing work home with him in violation of his personal pact, trying desperately to handle the same set of responsibilities in less time, Rich only seemed to be falling further behind. Both his family and his staff were equally unhappy with the change, one that they really didn't understand. Then, during another long and painful night in his home office, Rich made a decision that would change his career, his company, and his life forever. On the verge of resigning himself to giving up the firm, he decided to make one final desperate attempt at success. Instead of scouring his schedule each week in search of activities that he could eliminate, Rich decided to turn the nature of his inquiry upside down. He wrote a simple question on a piece of paper. What is the one thing I do that really matters to the firm? Rich stared at the question for almost an hour. Nothing came to him. Then he suddenly began to laugh to himself. Even he wondered if the situation wasn't driving him a little crazy. But nothing about the way Rich felt was irrational. In fact, His laugh was driven by equal parts of absurdity, simplicity, and insight. As the gravity of his breakthrough soaked in, Rich began to write his thoughts down on paper. After almost two hours, Rich had abandoned his goal of identifying a single area of focus in his job. Instead, he expanded it to four basic activities. Disciplines, really, which he neatly captured on a yellow piece of legal paper. He placed it inside his briefcase and went to bed, with a sense of excitement, relief, and hope that he hadn't felt since starting the firm three years earlier. Practice. When, when Rich woke the next morning, his sense of relief from the previous evening had faded somewhat, but when he arrived at work, he removed the yellow paper from his briefcase, stared at it for a few minutes, and felt his excitement begin to resurface almost immediately. Taping the yellow list to the top of his desk, Rich could not stop thinking about the four disciplines that he had discovered the previous night. For the next few mornings, he began his day by reviewing the list and making necessary adjustments to his schedule. After only a week, Rich's mindset had had begun to change dramatically. Within a few more weeks, Rich found himself thinking very little about his competition and he lost interest in many of his previous duties, like reviewing monthly billing records and expense details. 
He was leaving the office at 6.30 every evening and without his usual portfolio of reports and other reading material. More and more of Rich's responsibilities were being delegated to his staff members who were quietly speculating that he might be preparing to let go of the business. But soon it became clear to everyone that Rich was more engaged than he had been in almost a year. In spite of his delegation of various responsibilities, Rich's meetings took on a new sense of urgency and clarity. In fact, after just a few months, his staff saw his management style evolve toward a simpler, more focused approach. During meetings, Rich asked more pointed questions than ever before. He resisted the temptation to dive into each and every topic. If the temptation still existed at all, perhaps most important and certainly most notably, he spent more time listening during staff meetings. And when he did jump into a conversation, it was usually to refocus people on the topic at hand. Over the course of the year, Telegraph flourished and became the clear darling of the technical consulting arena. During that time, Rich guarded his schedule ferociously. Aside from occasional client visits and the unavoidable formalities required of a chief executive, everything that he did had something to do with at least one of the disciplines on the yellow sheet. And it came to be known by a few of the telegraphic, uh, as, it beca- as it came to be known by a few of the telegraph executives. They often teased Rich, accusing him of being obsessed with the list. But no one complained about it. I think today's episode, um, podcast, will be known as The Yellow Sheet. I'm just jotting that down. There we go. Interestingly, only a handful of people actually knew what was on The Yellow Sheet, which was odd because Rich didn't take any steps to conceal it or keep it confidential. But few people ever asked about it, and so it remained something of a mystery, which was okay with Rich, because no one else really needed to understand it. He certainly never suspected that it would become the blueprint of an employee's plan to destroy the firm. Hmm. He certainly never suspected that it would become the blueprint of an employee's plan to destroy the firm. That sounds a little bit ominous, does it not? The gatekeeper. Now, before I go into the next part, I just want to say if you are new here in the room, um, this is the Collective Cafe. We do this Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You may see it new here in the Startup Club, but we've been doing this since June of 2022, every single day in Discord um, in the Collective Cafe channel, that's discord.gg forward slash alpha collective. And, uh, and the vision here is to actually end up with, um, with a room or with a show or with a, a virtual coffee session that has thousands of executives or founders, entrepreneurs from around the world, whether you're students or not, it's free. Um, there's no ask other than just show up and, and, and be engaged if you like. But I want you to be on the treadmill. I want you to be getting the kids ready for school, walking the dog, commuting. You can subscribe to the podcast version, which I'll put up into into the nest right now. Um, We're also going to do a couple of cool things. Um, I didn't have it ready for today, but I should have it ready tomorrow, hopefully, or definitely by next week, which is something called a POAP, which is essentially a proof of attendance. So it's bit.ly forward slash collective cafe to go if you arrived late in the room uh, and you want to actually hear the first part of the book this is the first read so 
you can be completely up to speed. And so if you collect um, certainly all 12 of them, or even just, you know, a good chunk of them, you may be able to get a signed copy of one of my books at the end of the year, or maybe a one-hour private session with with everyone else, or by yourself, or walk on roll. I have a talk show called Joseph Jaffe's Not Famous. Um, so all I ask of you is, if this is valuable to you, is uh, is come back. Come back tomorrow. Uh, come back next week. Tell a friend. That's literally all I would ask of you. The Gatekeeper. From the moment he began using the disciplines on his yellow sheet, Rich was continually narrowing the scope of his responsibilities to a core set of activities. One of the areas that he most adamantly insisted on being involved in, and which had a profound connection to each of the four disciplines, was the hiring of new employees. More than a third of Rich's 55-hour work weeks, 50 was just not realistic for him, was spent interviewing potential hires. Initially, he insisted on seeing every candidate who cleared the first round of interviews. As the company grew, he limited himself to senior managers and partners. Even this proved to be a strain, but one that Rich gladly endured. In addition to the time he dedicated to interviews, every other Monday morning, he spent two full hours with new hires, welcoming them to the company and orienting them to the telegraph way of life. He then spent another couple of hours with current employees, listening to their ideas and concerns. At least once a year, Rich's guardian-like executive assistant, Karen, pleaded with him to cut back on both of these activities so he could enjoy a more manageable schedule. But he wouldn't hear of it. Other than running his weekly staff meetings, Rich felt that his involvement in hiring and orientation was one of his most important roles. As a result of Rich's diligence and focus, the company rarely made bad hires, at least not at a senior level. His team strongly believed that this was one of the reasons Telegraph had become a great company. But even great companies make mistakes. Asleep at the gate. Contrary to his belief of outsiders, media, competitors, even his own friends, Rich's success was not as easy to maintain as it looked. Even with his more manageable schedule, he was constantly focused on the list and immersing himself in one or more of the four disciplines. It was a regimen he gladly accepted. But every human being gets tired, and after eight years of running the company, Rich O'Connor had become very tired. So with some urging from his wife, he agreed to take a sabbatical of sorts. Six weeks with his family at Lake Tahoe. No email, no conference calls. The only connection to work would be a, fifth, would be a weekly 15-minute update from his trustworthy COO, Tom Givens. Now, when Tom called after just three days at the lake, Rich knew it must be important. Hey, I'm sorry to do this. I know we're supposed to talk on Tuesdays, but I need your go-ahead on something right away. Rich was secretly glad to be talking to Tom. He wasn't yet comfortable with the idea of being away from the firm for so long. He joked with his colleague, don't apologize to me. You're going to have to deal with Laura. If she finds out I'm talking to you, you'll be looking for a new job. Tom laughed. Okay, I'll keep it short. I think I finally found a replacement for Maureen, but I want to make an offer. It's the guy from Seattle who you spoke to on the phone before you left. <clears throat> but I won't be able to meet him for a few weeks still. I thought we agreed to hold off on... Tom tend tend tended to interrupt people as soon as he knew where they were headed. It was a quality that, after many earnest attempts, he was unable to correct. No one held it against him. 
But Rich, I think this is a special situation. The guy knows how to manage the HR side of acquisitions and he has a resume that looks better than yours and mine put together. He's got two other offers. One is from Greenwich, so we need to move right away. And Joel over at Mina Ventures says he's good. None of this persuaded Rich. First of all, I don't care if Greenwich or anything else is offering him a job. And second, you know how I feel about this, especially someone at this level. Sorry, Tom, it'll have to wait. Rich was accustomed to finding Tom and his other reports on issues like this from time to time, and he didn't mind doing so. In fact, there was something comforting about it. He recognized that it was Tom's job to get things done as quickly as possible, which included hiring enough employees while it was his own responsibility to preserve the culture, which included making sure those people were a good fit for Telegraph. Everyone appreciated the balancing effect of Rich's role, even if it made for occasional episodes of constructive conflict. Trying one last time to see if he could persuade his boss, Tom worded his plea carefully. Rich, you know that I buy into the importance of your interviews, But this isn't the CFO position we're talking about or even a practice director for that matter. It's the head of human resources. And we aren't going to find someone else this qualified anytime soon. Maybe it was because he was on vacation with his family, but for the first time, Rich O'Connor didn't hold his ground completely. What did everyone think of him? Shocked that he had an opening, Tom couldn't help but exaggerate a little. They loved him. They couldn't believe the strength of his resume and with the acquisitions we've got coming early next year, they think he could be very useful. After three months of serving as the acting head of HR, Tom was desperate to fill the position. He decided not to mention that Rita, Telegraph's legal counsel, hadn't met the candidate candidate yet. Most important of all, he really didn't see anything wrong with the guy. What about the cultural stuff? I'm assuming he meets all three of the criteria. Rich didn't need to remind his COO about the importance of the firm's values. All employees who had been with Telegraph for more than a few months knew that no matter how impressive their background or skills might have been, they'd made it into the firm because they were found to be humble, hungry, and smart. Tom hesitated just a little. I think so, yes, he does. Rich almost laughed. Come on, Tom. That's no ringing endorsement, does he or doesn't he? Well, everyone who's seen him thinks he's extremely smart, which is the least important of the three, Rich reminded him. Right. And in terms of hunger, according to his references, he, excuse me, he has the work ethic of a mule. They practically had to send him home half the time at Jensen. That wasn't necessarily what Rich was looking for in staff members, but it didn't hurt. What about humility? Tom cleared his throat. We think he is humble. We checked his references and heard nothing negative. Tom searched for more evidence to support his wishful thinking. We did speak to one person who worked for him, someone he actually wants to bring with him at some point. She thinks the guy walks on water. And by the way, she might be able to fill that internal communications position you've been talking about. Rich ignored Tom's persuasive maneuver. How did he interview Did you take him to the pier? Rich liked to test candidates who were on the verge of being hired by taking them places completely outside the typical interview experience to see how they would react. Pier 39, I've been there. Pier 39 was one of his favorites. 
because its touristy nature made it chaotic and tacky enough to unnerve someone who wasn't down to earth. We didn't, Tom admitted. Unfortunately, we only had a few hours for all the interviews, but everyone seems to like him. Rich didn't care if people liked the guy. He knew that most people at this level had learned how to become likable during interviews. What did Rita think? Tom winced. Rita was out of the office today, and she's been too busy to do a phone interview yet. Rich was silent. So Tom rallied to try and save the situation. Listen, we both knew that replacing Maureen was going to be impossible. We all wanted to pull her out of retirement, but we can't. And I just don't think we're going to find someone like her, no matter how long we wait. The silence on the other end of the line told Tom to keep talking. Besides, we did most of the behavioral interview and everyone, including Janet and Mark, agreed that we should hire him. And as soon as she can, I'll have Rita talk to him. Yet more silence. So Tom added, and I think you need to start trusting us on things like this. That was the clincher. Tom would later claim that he momentarily lost his ability to separate his role as a vacationing husband and father from his responsibility for protecting the interests of the firm. Whatever the case... Tom couldn't believe it when after a long pause, his boss said, okay, have Rita meet the guy, and then if she thinks he's all right, do it. What's his name again? Jamie. Jamie Bender. You're going to like him. The next morning, Rich felt an odd sense of relief at having relinquished a little of his responsibility to Tom. Nothing terrible has happened, he thought to himself. Maybe... I've been overestimating the importance of my role. Just three months later, Rich would be beside himself with frustration about Jamie, and he would have only himself to blame. So I think we'll do one more section today and then see if uh, anyone has comments or thoughts or questions, uh, reflections on what we've read today. Misorientation. Because Rich still had almost a month of sabbatical remaining, Jamie Bender began his tenure telegraph without meeting his new CEO face-to-face. Although he had two pleasant but formal telephone conversations with Rich after accepting Tom's job offer, those were no substitute for meeting the man in person. And in addition to circumventing the formal interview process, Jamie missed out on Rich's orientation program, which, uh, which would prove costly. No one walked away from a Rich O'Connor orientation speech without a clear sense of whether they would ultimately be a fit within Telegraph. In those rare cases when misfits slipped through the rigorous interview process, within a few months they usually came to the conclusion that they didn't belong at the firm. During exit interviews, most of them indicated that their first hint of a problem came during orientation. Tom did his best to fill in for Rich. He covered the fundamentals of the business as well as Rich could have and even made a point of spending sufficient time talking about the firm's culture. But there was nothing quite like hearing Rich's passionate description of why he started the company and what he expected of the people who worked there. When Rich returned from his sabbatical and finally had the chance to meet Jamie, he immediately sensed that something wasn't right. But he decided that he was being overly judgmental because he hadn't interviewed Jamie himself. I probably wouldn't have approved of Maureen or Tom right away either if someone else had hired them, he reasoned. During the next 
few months, Rich worked closely with Jamie on a handful of projects and was surprised at what little progress he was making in terms of becoming more comfortable within the company. Jamie's work itself was adequate, although certainly not spectacular. It was his demeanor that concerned Rich the most. While Jamie was certainly smart enough to make it a telegraph, he didn't seem to share the hunger and humility of his colleagues. Though he worked a substantial number of hours, he seemed more concerned about himself than the good of the company. And when it came to sharing credit for any accomplishment that he was involved in, Jamie often seemed to crave individual attention. After a few more months of the same dynamics, Rich's intuition became undeniable. He was convinced that Jamie was just not a perfect cultural fit. In fact, he wasn't even close. During staff meetings and one-on-ones, Jamie never offered strong opinions. In fact, Rich couldn't remember one instance when Jamie had challenged the opinion of a colleague, not to mention Rich himself. Some basic element of authenticity seemed to be missing. But Tom and the other staff members saw Jamie as a symbol of Rich's trust and their good judgment, so naturally they wanted him to succeed. See, this is an interesting point here. The others saw this new hire as a symbol of Rich's trust and their good judgment. So they wanted, they wanted him to succeed so badly to basically prove that Rich made the right decision and that they made the right decision as opposed to being able to say, you know what, we messed up here. Whenever Rich expressed his concerns about Jamie to one of them, They usually came to the defense of their new HR executive. Even Jamie himself usually became aware that his peers were in his corner, though he didn't yet realize how he would later be able to leverage their support. For a while, Rich's staff was able to keep their boss at bay about Jamie. After all, Rich knew that their intentions were good, and because he genuinely wanted to trust them in in this matter, he backed off. Finally, after a few more awkward weeks, Rich decided that the time for waffling was over. I've worked too hard to build this company. Even in his mind, he never seemed to finish that sentence. Hesitation. Though most of the CEOs he knew dreaded the ritual, Rich enjoyed doing performance reviews for his staff members. In fact, he insisted on doing them every quarter, believing that letting them that letting them more than that, sorry, <laughs> believing that letting more than three months go by between formal feedback sessions was irresponsible. And because busy travel schedules and increasing demands on everyone's time made informal feedback harder than ever, Rich came to value these sessions more and more, even when the news he had to deliver was not particularly good. Such was the case with Jamie Bender. Rich was not about to mince words with Jamie, and over the years, he had learned that taking quick action in situations like this was almost better than delaying the inevitable. With a performance review scheduled for that day, he decided that it provided, that it provided as good a forum as any for doing what he knew was right for the company. As he always did in cases like this, Rich went to see his legal counsel, Rita, She usually enjoyed his visits, but today her boss seemed particularly focused. Rita, I want to let Jamie go. What do we need to do? Surprised by the pointed nature of the remark, Rita almost laughed. Whoa, where's this coming from? I thought things were improving. Not in my opinion. Look, we made a hiring mistake. It was my fault. I know you all thought he would be a good fit, but it's my job to press hard on this issue. Rita looked a little surprised. Well, I never thought he was a good fit. In fact, I told Tom 
that I thought Jamie seemed a bit insecure. Rich looked surprised, then relieved, as though he had just found out yet another clarifying piece of his puzzle. Listen, I suppose I can't really blame Tom for ignoring a few warning signs. He wanted to get someone in here, and that's his job. I should have insisted on maintaining my part of the process. Rita seemed to be waiting for Rich's next sentence, so he continued. Anyway, I'm giving him his performance review this afternoon, and it's time for me to make things right. Probably because she had just finished a rare and painful termination lawsuit, and because she was feeling bad for letting Tom goad her into approving of Jamie, Rita felt the need to discourage her boss. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that would be a good idea. I'm I'm not sure that would. <laughs> it's so weird. That I can't read this. I'm not sure that would be such a good idea right now. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm not sure that would be such a good idea right now. If you ask me, Jamie's starting to fit in a little bit better. And we haven't done anything even remotely reassembling, resembling a warning, verbal or otherwise. That's exactly the problem, Rich thought. He could almost feel the jello he was walking through begin to solidify as he spoke. Come on, Rita, don't give me that lawyer crap. He's a vice president. He signed a contract saying he could be terminated at any time. I don't care if we are in California. Rita laughed. I know, technically you're right. But I think a guy at this level needs a little more rope. Rich was adamant now. No, less rope. Senior people should get less rope because in the process of hanging ourselves, they snag other people too. Oh, <coughs> that is a good line, huh? Senior people should get less rope because in the process of hanging themselves, they snag other people too. Mm, that is the quote of the episode. Rita realized there was no changing her boss's mind, so she offered him a compromise. I'll tell you what. How about if you give Tom how about if you give him a Tom Clancy? Rich didn't catch on, so she explained. A clear and present danger review. Tell him that if you don't see improvement fast, he's gonna be on his way out. Rich considered it, then nodded, as though he had no choice. He trusted Rita. Okay but it isn't going to be pretty. Rita winced and wished him luck. All right, we're going to stop there for today. And um, if you have any comments or questions, uh, certainly put it in the chat. Anyone wants to come onto stage, uh, just raise your hand. Um, Just want to give you a bit of feedback from my side and also just to say the people that are still here, I'm not sure who was here from the beginning, but David, Faez, Sunshine, Make sure uh, Constance, Jida, Martin, Patrice, Hadassah, Cherm, SR, Rohit, Jeremiah, Y, Boss, Slick, one of our regulars, Dina, uh, Noritaka, and Muhammad. Thank you for uh, being a part of this today. Um, remember, we're here every day, Monday through Friday in the Startup Club, 8 to 9 a.m. when I'm available, obviously. Um, you can uh, actually come and hang out in Discord if you like. You can subscribe to the Collective Cafe to Go, the podcast. And uh, hopefully I'll have a, a nice POAP, a nice little proof of attendance badge that you had coffee with me, virtual coffee with me in the month of February. Look, my feeling, you know, in this, uh, as now a coach, you know, this is part of our reading and our clients reading, required reading material, is that um, there's a lot of things that that uh, that um, reinforce this notion that, um, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. 
that you know when you have that that feeling that that sneaky feeling that spidey sense when you know someone's a problem any delays are going to are just going to kill you they're going to crush your company if they're the wrong person and you know they're the wrong person we're not talking you know the sneaky feeling the gut you know whatever you you can you can absolutely solidify it you know the beauty of eos which is the system that i coach is that there is a tool it's called the people analyzer and it uses core values and if you are below the bar there's a problem and you shouldn't have to figure that out here's the key you shouldn't have to figure that out 3 months or 3 years into the process you should be able to figure that out in the interviewing process in this case in the orientation process but i can tell you and i you know there are two things that i want to just kind of leave you with number 1 is any delays and procrastination is only going to hurt. It's not going to help. It's only going to hurt. The other thing is you waste so much time and energy complaining about that person. How many times have you sat in a meeting and the same person comes up, what are we going to do about, you know, what are we going to do about Mary? What are we going to do about John? It's just wasted time and effort and energy. And remember that key quote right at the end. The more senior you are, the smaller, the tighter the rope, the less slack. Because when when there is too much slack, not only do they take that rope and hang themselves, but they snare others in the process. Making tough decisions. Being decisive. No one said it was going to be easy. But it's the right thing and often it's the only thing to do. And so you've got to do it. So if there aren't any questions or comments, I will uh, give you two minutes back of your day. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful Thursday. I'll see some of you tomorrow in the Collective Cafe. Please bring a friend. Indicate if you bring a friend in the chat or send me a, a message um, so I can recognize you as well for helping grow um, our, our coffee shop. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.